swing and a drive. Deep to left center field. Going, going. Goodbye, baseball. This is Extra Innings. Fastball swing and a miss. Strike three. That's going to retire the side. Seattle sports goes inside the Mariners with more stories, insights, and analysis than you'll find anywhere. Drilled up the middle. Oh, what a catch by J.P. Crawford. Step in the batter's box in the top of the tent right now. Joining me on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline, he is one of the voices of Mariners Radio. Gary Hill Jr. joins me on the Extra Innings. That's what we're calling this thing. Gary, appreciate you joining me. You're calling all the way from Tampa, I believe, right? Yeah, perfect. Extra Innings. Uh, we just had some Extra Innings yesterday, so it works out perfectly. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm in Tampa right now awaiting the series starting up tomorrow, and I'm pretty pumped about it. I can't wait to see this. Uh, as you know, the Mariners... They're playing so well right now. That was such a fun homestand. I can't wait to see what this road trip looks like. Oh, I, Mariners fans, I would imagine, are, are chomping at the bit. I mean, they're probably like, why do we have off days? And <laughs> coming off a homestand like we saw at T-Mobile, I mean, there might be a little bit of disappointment in people t- tuning in to find me here. But look, Mariners baseball comes back tomorrow. We're talking Mariners right now with Gary. Gary, what was your favorite part of that 7-2 and two homestand? Oh, man, that is a great question and impossible to answer. Uh, I mean, how do you, I guess, how do you not say Ty France, who just was out of his mind? That was an unbelievable homestand he had, and especially series against Kansas City. He was unreal. I mean, just lasering the ball all over the yard, uh, power to go with it, on base constantly. Player of the week in the American League, I mean, for, for good reason. And I was looking at it today just to kind of give you an idea of what his start has looked like this year. When you look at WRC+, Plus, which is my favorite offensive number going right now, uh, you look at all of baseball, Mike Trout is number one and Ty France is number two, and they are dead even at 235. It's it, He's had just an incredible start to the season. It's been so fun to watch. It just... The, the way I describe it, he's just a hitter. He's just a professional hitter. And I think that was my favorite part of what was uh, so much to like from what we saw this past series in homestand. He was incredible with the bat. And Brandon Gustafson, who I had on earlier tonight on Extra Innings, we talked about last week, actually, we talked about how maybe Ty France could, could be a potential all-star. But with a week mm-hmm. like he had this week, do you think maybe that kind of recalibrates our expectations for him this season, that maybe there's something a little more that he can offer? You know, it's funny that you phrase it like that, too, because, you know, I have been thinking about that a lot, and not just this past week, but kind of what we've seen from him the past year. And I feel like I'm always needing to kind of recalibrate, just kind of uh, when I think about his ceiling in particular, kind of thinking through, just readjusting what I think he can end up being, what his ceiling can be, because he just seems to get better and better as a hitter. And we talked about it, too. You you had the injury last year. You take that away. He's a 300 hitter last season. He's a 370 on base guy last season. So really good numbers. He was 30-plus double last year, nearly 20 home runs. That's a really good season. Now, where can he go from there? I mean, can he be better this year? I mean, that's pretty good. If he be better, that is all-star. I mean, that's what you're talking about. That's the next level of progression if he's better 
than what he did last year. You're talking about an all-star. And he's smack dab in the middle of his prime. It's funny because it looks like such a pro when he's hitting. He doesn't have a ton of major league experience under his belt, but you wouldn't know it by watching him. He's just so fun to watch in the box because he has such a good idea of what he's doing. And you could see it from Kansas City. They tried everything. Kitchen sink, man. And he's just, you know, flying balls into right field if they attack him on the corners. If they come in, he's just hammering it. There was no way to pitch to him in that series. I think one of my underrated favorite parts of that Kansas City series was in the 12th inning where they just handed Ty France four, yeah. four wide to start the inning. They're like we would rather have White two flag, guys. Maybe. We would rather have two guys on and try to get three outs than to have this guy up with a runner in scoring position with a chance to end it. Uh, he was just a machine this weekend uh, against the Kansas City Royals. Uh, let's get to this series coming up against Tampa Bay, a team that last year the Mariners had the number of really uh, winning six of seven against the Rays, including that memorable four game sweep against Tampa at home. Uh, culminating in the Father's Day Grand Slam hit by Shed Long. Uh, when you look at this Rays team, Gary, why do you think the Mariners matched up so well with them last year, and, and do you think they can repeat that this year? That was one of my favorite series last year. It was such a great series. It was so well played. Those games were all close, and they won them late. It was kind of like a microcosm of the Mariners' season, right? And especially with the bullpen, they pitched so well in that series. Uh, I just think the teams match up really well, and they do a lot of the same things well. Uh, Tampa Bay always has really good pitching. You know you're going to get that. You're going to get one live arm after another out of the bullpen. You're always going to see that with Tampa Bay. And offensively, they might not overwhelm you when you look at them on paper, but they play the matchups really well. They're a team that it's always important when you kind of break down Tampa Bay is to look at the splits because – Sometimes the overall numbers don't jump out, but when you dig into, wow, that guy crushes lefties or that guy crushes righties, they're just really good at playing to their strengths. And it's funny because you look at them and it seems like every year you end up saying, well, they're not going to be as good as last year. They won 100 games last year, and they're always as good as they are last year, even in that division with the Yankees and the Blue Jays and the Red Sox. This year, I think they're fighting it even more because they have a lot of really good arms on the I.L., like big-time arms on the I.L. So I think they've had to finesse it a little bit more this year. They've had more bullpen games than I think they would have liked, but they don't have that same sort of starter depth. So uh, Mariners will probably see a, a lot of bullpen from Tampa Bay. In fact, no team has thrown more bullpen innings than Tampa Bay. But you know what you're going to get? They're a really good team. They're going to play well at home. They're going to be tough to beat. And I think Wander Franco is one of the great young players in this game. And I'm really excited to watch him the next three days in person. Although I hope he doesn't do too much damage to the Mariners. Yeah, he's... <laughs> is that too much to ask? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, because he has just been incredible to start this season. Uh, definitely earning that huge contract that the Rays gave him prior to this year. Yeah. Uh, but one young star for the Mariners who may have a lot to say in how Fran- in how Wander Franco performs this series, or at least in the opener, is going to be Logan Gilbert, who has looked fantastic to start this season. What have you seen from him in year two uh, that jumps off the page compared to what he did in year one? I have been so impressed with Logan Gilbert so far, and which is like Captain Obvious statement because he's given up a run so far this season. So he's obviously been great. 
But I think what impresses me the most about what we've seen from Logan Gilbert is he was solid last year uh, in his first season, in his rookie year. And he went out in this offseason and basically retooled his whole arsenal outside of his fastball. I just find that to be so impressive because as a guy that we saw really flashes of excellence last year, he would have been fine to just come back with that same exact arsenal pitch and pitch well. But no, he retooled the whole thing. He, he retooled his slider. It's more of a hard slider now than uh, it used to be more of a sweeper last time. And he kind of, you know, looked at the best sliders in the game, whether it's DeGrom or Scherzer, which are good guys to copy when you're talking about a pitch like a slider. He's throwing his curveball different. He's using a different uh, change-up grip. I mean, he's changed everything, and it has made a big difference because, you know, at times last year he survived on basically just the fastball. This year he's worked the whole arsenal, and we've seen when that arsenal is working, man, he is really good like ace stuff. That's the kind of thing we've seen so far. I mean, 15 punch outs and 16 innings. The most impressive part, though, one walk this whole time. Just one walk in 16 innings to start the season. If you can do that at this level, mix in strikeouts, you're going to be good. And he's been really good so far. Yeah, he's just been a, a machine to start the season, and hopefully yeah. that can continue here against Tampa Bay. Joined by Gary Hill Jr. for just a few more moments. And, and Gary, uh, one, I guess, sore spot coming out of this Royals series, and I think it kind of extends into the Rangers series, was the bullpen a little bit uh, as they struggled to hold on to leads, specifically Saturday and Sunday. Uh, obviously the loss of Paul Seawald over the last week or so has been uh, you know, a big big hole to fill in the pen. Uh, what are you seeing right now from them that should be able to uh, you know, they should be able to iron out those wrinkles going forward? You know, it's a great question because I think the depth is really being tested right now because if you peel it back to what we thought this bullpen would look like in spring training, you're missing Sadler from that. Uh, we haven't seen Giles yet. We expected him to be a part of things late in innings. And then you pull Seawalt out of the mix, who's the guy. I mean, he has been the guy for the Mariners the last two years. In any sticky situation, Seawalt is the one they've called on. So you take those three live arms out of the mix, and I just think their depth has been tested. I mean, Castillo's had to work a lot. He's done a really good job, but he's had to pitch a lot so far. Uh, Stecken Riders had his up and some downs. They're just trying to figure it out. Uh, Munoz has been... You know, lights out. I mean, that's been clear. He's just striking out everyone, throwing 100. Actually, throwing 100, that doesn't give him enough credit. Sometimes throwing 103. Uh, there's two guys that I think that have been interesting in this stretch because they've needed guys to step up in leverage situations because they've been in a lot of leverage situations in the homestand. Uh, Eric Swanson has been really impressive to me so far. Uh, seven and two-thirds innings so far, 10 strikeouts, which is really great. Hasn't given up a run. They've needed those leverage innings. He's given them. And Matt Festa, to me, has been really interesting. Uh, he looks different than he had the last time we saw him in a major league uniform. He's throwing a different slider. Uh, he used to throw a couple of different ones, and now he's kind of honed in on one, and it's been really effective. His fastball's up a tick as well. Uh, he's pitched in high leverage situations and pitched pretty well so far, too. So I think that's the good thing coming out of this, that when you get some of those leverage arms back, when Seawald comes back, hopefully you'll add Giles to the mix as well. Maybe you've padded that depth again with Swanson and Festa. In the meantime, they're just going to have to piece it together, uh, you know, without Seawald in the mix. 
the good thing is, I know we joked about having an off day. Like, you never want to have an off day when you're, you're playing so well. But the off day came at a really good day for the bullpen because they threw a lot of innings the last two days. So now a chance to reset in front of Tampa Bay, which is really good. I guess there is a silver lining in in, in yeah, this off day. There is. Uh, there is a silver lining for sure. <laughs> Gary, I appreciate you joining me. Uh, he is Gary Hill of the Mariners Radio Network. Gary, enjoy the chain restaurant scene in Tampa. Uh, maybe pound a few natty lights as the as the locals like to do, and uh, I'll enjoy tuning into you this week. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Well, uh, I, I think I'm just going to go into Tampa Bay and just kind of float. Yeah, kind just of float around. Let the city that. take you yeah. wherever it takes you. Yeah, just, yeah. I mean, it's an off day. If I, who knows where I'll end up? But I think that's my plan. So if you don't hear from me tomorrow, I'll know it went terribly wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate it, Gary. Thank you so much for joining me. Anytime. I enjoyed being on the Sea Rodge experience. Well, we talked about it with Gary Hill. That four game sweep of the Tampa Bay Rays a year ago with that huge walk off grand slam hit by Shedlong in extra innings. We take a look back at that memorable series coming up next. This is Extra Innings. I'm Curtis Rogers, and you are listening to Seattle Sports Station on 710 and seattlesports.com. Joining me in about 15 minutes, Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. He will stop by to give us an opponent preview of what the Mariners are facing tomorrow at Tropicana Field against the Tampa Bay Rays. Logan Gilbert on the hill for the Mariners as they take on Tampa, a team that last year, if you recall, had quite the trouble getting out of Seattle, or at least quite the trouble playing these Mariners six times in seven games. The Mariners were victorious against the Tampa Bay Rays, a Tampa Bay ball club that won 100 games in 2021. So the Mariners were responsible for a tenth of their losses, and they only played them seven times in the 2021 season. Now, this Mariners ball club a year ago, heading into that series against the Tampa Bay Rays early June, or mid to late June, I should say, a lot was still a lot of question marks were still existing about the Mariners. They were not a team that I think anybody was taking seriously at that point, at least outside of the city of Seattle. They had been around 500, kind of hovering at that spot. In fact, heading into that series, they were only 34 and 36. They had a losing record going into that against a Tampa Bay team that was really really good. Uh, they were really good at at all points of the season a year ago, but especially heading into that series uh, against the Mariners in late June, uh, culminating on Father's Day weekend. They were forty three and twenty seven heading into that series, and from that point on, that was at least in my mind. And I, I if you agree, Mac and Jack's text line is there for you two zero six four two one three seven seven six. To me, it felt like that series against the Rays a year ago was a jumping-off point for that ball club, for that Mariners team that really captured a lot of fans' imagination in the second half of the season, especially that run to end the year where they nearly pulled it off and made the playoffs, finishing just a couple games out of the second wild-card spot, going 90-72, and finishing with the most wins that any Mariners team has had since 2003. The first time they have surpassed 90 wins in any season since then. But 
that four-game series against the Rays, as Gary Hill pointed out, almost a microcosm of their season in game one of the series against Tampa Bay. I mean, looking at the guys who won ball games in that series, it's wild to think. Hector Santiago. Remember him? Free Hector. Free Hector. He has not appeared in a major league game since getting his glove confiscated and getting ejected and that whole fiasco. Remember that? That feels like a million years ago. He got the win in game one, but that game was an incredible walk-off moment for the Mariners. Shed Long in the ninth inning. Mariners trailing, needing some hope, and they found it on the bat of Shed Long. Fairbanks assigned, the set delivers. Swing and a line drive to left field. Down the line for a base hit. More rounding third being waved in. He's going to score around to third. Diving into the bag, Bowers. The throw in by a Rosarena. Cut off by the shortstop walls. Long in its second base with an RBI double. Shed has tied it up at 5-5 five to five here in the bottom of the ninth inning. Holy smokes. What a big base hit by Shed Long. His second hit of the night and his second double ties it in the bottom of the ninth. The Mariners tying it in the bottom of the ninth thanks to the bat of Shed Long which kind of goes to show just how many new faces are around this team year in and year out. But if you remember in that game, Kyle Seager had not started the night. He was coming off the bench he was struggling, too. I mean, his bat coming into the game, hovering around 200, the OPS only around 699. He was scuffling at the plate. But the Mariners giving him a shot off the bench in the bottom of the ninth inning, the very next batter after Shedlong's game-tying double, Kyle Seager coming off the bench and walking it off. The Mariners looking for a walk-off win here in the bottom of the ninth inning. And the Fairbanks 0-1 pitch on the way to Kyle Seager. Swinging the ground ball, base in the right field. The Mariners win it. Bowers will score. Kyle Seager with a pinch hit. RBI walk-off single here in the bottom of the ninth. And the Mariners come from behind and beat the Rays 6-5 to to take the opening game of this four-game series. And Seager's getting mobbed out there in shallow right field. What a moment that was. That was just an incredibly fun start to the series. Little did we know what awaited us throughout the rest of that series. In Game 2, the Mariners with a comfortable 5-1 win. This would be the last time we'd find comfort at any point in this series. Uh, the Mariners getting a, a solid pitching performance from Yusei Kikuchi. Remember the first half he had a year ago. Uh, they drive. They drove in four runs in the first inning and pretty much coasted the rest of the way, winning 5-1 over Tampa Bay. In Game 3, though, this is where everything got dramatic. Everything in this series was dramatic. Game 1, as we know, with the walk-off. Game 3, going to extra innings. And Rafael Montero on in relief. But before we get to extras, though, there was the first of two Grand Slams hit in this series. J.P. Crawford going yard. Fleming ready, and the 0-1 to Crawford. Swinging a drive deep to right field. Margot going back, and this one is gone. Grand Salami time. Grandma, get out the right bread and mustard. It is Grand Salami time. J.P. Crawford with a line shot into the lower deck in straightaway right field. His fifth home run of the season. 
JP going yard for the Grand Slam. That gave the Mariners a 5-2 lead, but Tampa Bay chipping away. Chipping away as they always do, getting runs back in the 5th, 6th, and ninth inning, forcing it to extras for the second time in this series. The Mariners sending Rafael Montero out to the mound to hold a tie ball game in the 10th inning with a runner on. He got out of it, and in the 10th inning, the Mariners half, Mitch Haniger working his magic. Here comes his first pitch. Swung on, lasered into left field. That's down for a base hit. J.P. Crawford rounding third base. He's being waved in. The throw to plate is not in time. It is party time at home plate. A walk-off winner. J.P. Crawford scores. Mitch Hanniger wins the game. And the Mariners walk it off for the second time in the series. Six to five in ten innings. The Mariners win it. It is wild to think about the amount of dramatics that were in this series, this tide-turning series that became a point of reference for many of us who cover this team and many of us who watch this team on a nightly basis. Would the Mariners in 2021 have had the season they had if this series hadn't happened? Would they have been capable of pulling off a tremendous second half, a second half that really showed what this ball club is capable of. Would it have happened had this Mariners sweep, this four-game sweep, and I guess I'm giving away the end of this look back at it, but if this four-game sweep against a contending ball club, against one of the best-run franchises in all of baseball, if this hadn't happened a year ago, where would this Mariners team be? You kind of wonder about the butterfly effect of that. Because the momentum they gained from this series, they were able to catapult it into a winning record by the time the All-Star break came around, which was about a, it was less than a month after this series. They go into the All-Star break at 48 and 43 when they were just 34 and 36 heading into this Tampa Bay series. And then we know what they were capable of. We knew what they did in the second half of the season and how they finished off the regular season. But where would this Mariners team be in 2022? Where would they be if they weren't able to use this Rays series as a catapult for greater things? Would we be here in 2022 looking ahead and saying, could this be a playoff team? I mean, we're 16 games into the season. We're a tenth of the way. And I don't think anybody is scoffing at that opinion right now. In the series finale against the Tampa Bay Rays, you couldn't ask for a louder punctuation to a four-game sweep. Tied 2-2 in extra innings, bases juiced, full of Mariners, shed long at the plate. Shedlong Jr. has a chance to win this one in 10 for the Mariners. Castillo sets, fires. Swing out to right field. This is on its way back, and it's gone! Walk-off home run! You did it, Shed Long Jr. It's a walk-off slam. What a moment. The Mariners can't do anything but walk off the Rays. They do it for the third time and sweep aside Tampa Bay in four. What a moment. If you were at the ballpark that day, I'm sure you'll never forget it. I'll never forget it because it was my first Father's Day, obviously being a dad for the first time. And I would imagine Shedlong Sr. will never forget that moment. 
Justice Shedlong Jr. will never forget that moment. A moment that the Mariners were able to propel themselves forward and put themselves in greater position as a franchise. And hopefully this series coming up against the Tampa Bay Rays, we can see some more clutch hitting, some more clutch moments, some moments that will have us looking back on and being like, yeah, that that's when we knew. That's when we knew this 2022 ball club was something worth talking about. On the other side of the break, we sit down with Mark Topkin, who covers the Tampa Bay Rays for the Tampa Bay Times. We'll talk about that four-game series against the Rays a year ago, and also who should we be watching for in that Rays dugout this upcoming week against Tampa. I'm Curtis Rogers. This is Extra Innings. You're listening to Seattle Sports Station on 710 and the Seattle Sports app. You're listening to Extra Innings inside the Mariners on the home of the Mariners, Seattle Sports Station. Joining me now on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline, it is Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. If you're a Mariners fan, you've probably seen this guy on your Twitter feed breaking every trade that the Mariners and Rays make over the years. Uh, he is a must-follow for any baseball fan out there. Mark, really appreciate you joining me. How you doing today? Doing all right. Doing all right. A little bit of a uh, off day here, and then the big series with the Mariners starts tomorrow. It does. It does. And it seems like these two teams are, are intertwined over the years because of just how many trades they have made with each other. Last year during the trade deadline, there was the JT Charcois, Diego Castillo trade. Uh, obviously, there have been some other big ones. Mike Zanino, that trade comes to mind. The Alex Colomay, Denard Span trade comes to mind, too. What is it about these two teams that always finds themselves gravitating towards each other if, if they need to make a move? Well, it's funny because we have joked about the general managers having a bit of a bromance, and neither one now would they deny it. But I, I do think it's a, kind of a glimpse of two teams that probably or do value players in similar ways. So it's easier to line up when you have you know, similar expectations and, and similar realistic views of players, that you don't go into a conversation saying, you know, this guy is worth this much, and I, but I want to trade him for this guy who only, I only think is worth three times less. I mean, if they have a similar view of things when they start, there's a better chance to get the conclusion, and I think both Jerry and Eric Neander have been able to do that. Mark, you look at this Rays team, every few years there is a top 10, top 5 prospect that is bursting onto the scene. Last year was Wander Franco. Uh, Shane Boz is also, uh, he made his debut at the end of last season. What is it about the Rays that they're able to produce so many great young players over the years and, and not have as big of a, I guess, miss rate as other teams do? I know here in Seattle, there's still you know a lot of uh, you know teeth clenching over Jared Kelnick's start to his career. What is it? What have made the Rays so successful in getting these prospects to the big leagues and, and developing them into? great everyday players or even all-stars well i think part of it is that they they try so often they have such a large pool because they don't spend a ton of money uh, on major league payroll because they don't sink a lot of money into you know big league free agents especially older guys you know they're constantly kind of replenishing that pool of young players and you know every trade they make they almost always seem to have an add-on type of guy to it as well and, and sometimes that helps in fact tommy romero who was in that trade uh, that you mentioned, uh, Alex Colomade, Denard Spann, uh, he made his major league debut earlier this year. When they got Tommy Romero from the Mariners, he was a skinny little kid who looked like he was maybe going to max out at A-ball or something. And, you know, here he was pitching the big leagues, and he'll be back uh, at some point this year as well. So I think they, they always make an effort to get extra young players. Uh, they 
commit a lot internationally, which is obviously how they got Wander Franco and uh, Diego Castillo, who is now a Mariner, and you know Vidal Brujan, and we can go on and on of guys they get internationally. They are very good uh, at the draft again. They had a period of time where they weren't very good at the draft. They've been pretty good at the draft again. But it, it's weird, and everything you said is true, but they don't actually have a ton of homegrown players that star for them in the big leagues. A lot of times they develop these guys and you turn around and use them as commodity as well to kind of keep that cycle going. So, you know, Kevin Kiermaier is a homegrown player. Obviously, Wander Franco is. Shane McClanahan has become their ace pitcher. So I think we're seeing more of that. And In fact, the Rays kind of see themselves as the on the cusp of becoming more kind of self-sufficient in that regard. Mark, what are the year-to-year expectations for a team like Tampa who, at their very best, we saw it a couple of years ago, they were in the World Series, but they tend to you know, make so many moves during each offseason that it's kind of hard to get a read on them from year to year. Have they become a team in the Tampa area where everybody's expecting at least an AL East crown in, in a playoff run, or, or does the expectations kind of vary as the team you know, maneuvers over from year to year? No, I think, I think again, both things are true. They've set a really high bar now to where they are expected to be in the race every year. Maybe not win the East. They have won it back-to-back years. And, and you know, some people in that organization will tell you that winning the East is their biggest accomplishment. You know, They'd like to, of course, win a World Series. They'd like to get back to the World Series for a third time. But to survive the AL East, the gauntlet of Toronto, New York, Boston, and you know, eventually Baltimore is going to be good again. And these teams that have these massive amount of resources to draw upon to, to win that over six months is, is really their biggest accomplishment. So they do have that expectation every year. They do have that goal. They have set that far high, but yet they do turn the roster. And, and here we saw it again this year was the talk during the spring was, boy, this is weird. They really haven't gotten rid of that many guys from last year and, you know, they did trade Joey Wendell was one of the bigger ones uh, who was a really helpful piece to have kind of as a super utility infielder. Uh, they let Nelson Cruz go, but, you know, there wasn't anything major. And then four days before the start of the season, they trade Austin Meadows, who'd been an all-star for him and led them in RBIs last year and home runs two years before that. So they always are looking to turn. They're always looking to find a way to get better on the margin. Sometimes they hit, sometimes they miss. Uh, does that temper expectations a little bit? Yeah. Does it annoy the fan base? It does. And, uh, like Dave Wills, one of the Rays radio announcers, said this a couple of years ago when they had Nathaniel Lowe, excuse me, Nathaniel Lowe had just come up. Brandon Lau was on the cusp of coming up, and the younger brother, Josh Lowe, had been drafted uh, and was in the system. And he said, if you want to best bet, it's probably to buy a jersey that says Lowe on the back because you got three chances. And two of them are still with the team. So uh, it, it is that kind of situation. They do turn the roster a lot, but they also do it in a way that they always feel like they can contend and their motto or their explanation, according to Eric Neander, who's the baseball operations president, is they want to give themselves as many chances as they can to try to win that World Series. Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times joining me here on Extra Innings for just a few more moments. And, Mark, the Rays involved in one of the craziest games of the early part of the season here on Saturday, going nine innings of no-hit ball on a bullpen day against the Red Sox. And then in the 10th <laughs> inning, the Red Sox take the lead, two runs, they're up 2-0, and then Kevin Kiermeyer hits the walk-off in the bottom of the 10th inning. You've been around the game for quite some time. You've covered this Rays for quite some time. Have you ever had a day at the ballpark like it was on Saturday? No, it's up there. It was up there. You know, you're you're kind of writing, you know, as you go because you're trying to, you know, as we all do now, you file something as soon as the game ends. It's an instantaneous world on the Internet and trying to have a story ready to go. You're not, you don't have the luxury of waiting until it's all over and then kind of 
scratching your chin and deciding what was most important. And of all the possible outcomes that you're kind of running through in your head as you're trying to put the story together, I did not have the Kevin Kiermeyer two run walk off homer after an error by Trevor Story on the bingo card. So a very unpredictable ending, very unexpected ending. And, you know, just kind of shows you a couple things is that, you know, a bullpen day isn't, you're not giving the game away because I hear the Rays were, they got a no hitter out of their bullpen day for nine plus innings. And also just the unpredictability of this game. And, and that's kind of what makes a lot of people love this game because you, you don't know what's going to happen. A lot of times you can watch a football game or a basketball game and you, you pretty much see how it's going to end. A baseball game, not necessarily. And certainly this one was that case. Yeah, it had the Rays polished off that no-hitter. Would have set a record for most pitchers used in a no-hitter. It would have been seven. Uh, unfortunately, that did not happen. The Mariners still hold that record with six. They tied with the Astros a few years prior to that one. Right, that's right. <laughs> that Craziness uh, with these two teams for sure. Last year, Mark, speaking of craziness, the series here in Seattle, four games, uh, I believe three ended in a walk-off. The Mariners finish yep, off that yep. four-game sweep. Uh, a lot of Mariners fans, and I think a lot of people in the Mariners clubhouse, pointed to that series as a huge turning point for the Mariners in their 2021 season where they managed to win 90 games. Fell short of the playoffs, though. What was that series like covering from the Rays' perspective? Was a, a message at all sent to Tampa that series that, hey, this Mariners team might not be uh, one we can push over as, as much as we've had in the past? Yeah, and I, and I don't even know that they thought that ahead of time because hadn't they played here already earlier? And I think the Rays maybe won one of the three, and uh, the Mariners showed up pretty well then too. And I remember Kevin Cash saying that this team was definitely on the verge of putting it together, and they certainly did in that series in Seattle. And if it was a message to the Rays, I don't even know if it was much about, hey, the Mariners are good. I think they may have known that. I think it was like you guys aren't as good as you think maybe and you need to kind of you know tighten it up a little bit as you get toward the end of the season I think that was in mid-August or so and there was a reminder there that you know you're not going to cruise through things either so I, I think a lot of respect from the Rays for the Mariners the Mariners won six of the seven games last year and I think Ty France won best player in the history of the world that week and uh, Crawford had a big series too and I'm sure they want to see what Julio Rodriguez is all about now. Yeah, well, I hate to break it to any Rays fan that might be tuning in, but Ty France is having the best week ever coming into this series, too. He was incredible on the most recent homestand, so something to watch out for. Also something to watch out for, both teams both dealing with COVID issues right now. Uh, can you take us inside the clubhouse and, and tell us what's going on with the Rays? Yeah, they, they seem to feel like they may have it contained. Um, they had a couple guys miss a day or two. Uh, Yanni Diaz missed a day. Jeffrey Springs, a reliever, missed yesterday. The one guy that's been out for a few days now that did test positive was Francisco Mejia, kind of the backup catcher or the second catcher. Not, not a full backup role. but um, And a few coaches missed. Uh, some staff members have tested positive. But they, they seem to feel, uh, as they were leaving yesterday, they had this contained. But it was kind of a stark reminder that, you know, COVID is still an issue. And, you know, while all the rules are relaxed and the protocols are relaxed, it's still something teams have to be aware of and be careful of. And, you know, they had a, a long trip to Chicago. They had a rain delay during that game or, at, you know, before the game was called. So they're all together in that clubhouse for a long time. They're all together on the plane, uh, some delays leaving. So they had a lot of, you know, exposure to each other that last night of the trip from Chicago and they came home. Uh, the staff got a message Thursday afternoon uh, everybody needed to self-test, and then Friday they announced they had some cases. Well, hopefully we can 
have full rosters on both sides here in the next few days. He is Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. You can follow him on Twitter at TBTimes underscore Rays. Mark, really appreciate you taking the time out and uh, look forward to talking to you later on this season when the Mariners and Rays get together again. All right, sounds good. Big thanks again to Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times for joining me. That's how we wrap up every edition of Extra Innings with a little bit of pepper. We take a look at some of the biggest headlines in the game of baseball to finish off each and every edition. This is Extra Innings. I'm Curtis Rogers. You are listening to Seattle Sports Station on 710 and seattlesports.com. You're listening to Extra Innings Inside the Mariners on the home of the Mariners, Seattle Sports Station. Appreciate you tuning in tonight, making this a part of your Monday evening. Make sure you're downloading the Extra Innings podcast. SeattleSports.com is where you can find it. A lot of fun tonight here, looking ahead to this Mariners series against the Rays and also looking back on just an incredible homestand in Seattle at T-Mobile Park. Let's take a look around Major League Baseball as we do to finish off every single edition of Extra Innings. Let's go to Philadelphia where... Boy, last night, if you were watching Sunday Night Baseball, you saw Kyle Schwarber absolutely lose his marbles, and that's not something that Schwarber normally does. He is a guy that has really been one of the good guys in baseball, or at least one of the likable guys in baseball over the course of his career, as we all remember him with the Chicago Whites or the Chicago Cubs, I should say, and then going to the Red Sox and Nationals. He's now with the Phillies, signed there in the offseason. Last night, he had a message to send to one Angel Hernandez, who we all know is one of the absolute worst umpires in baseball. And Schwarber got more than his money's worth. Boy, what a uh, what a blow-up he had <laughs> on Angel, who I think a lot of players would share that opinion. Now, a really funny tweet following the game was from Angel's pitcher Noah Syndergaard, who pitched a lot for the New York Mets back in the day. He's now with the Angels, and he said something to the effect of, I don't know what y'all are complaining about. I love Angel Hernandez's strike zone. And look, I I would imagine many pitchers do because Angel Hernandez at one point last night, or I think after the game, finished with only a 77% correct call on balls and strikes that were not swung at. Which, you know, C's get degrees. I, I get that. They don't print your GPA on anything, uh, you know, on your diploma. They don't print your GPA on your resume, what have you. I, I do wonder, though, how much longer Angel Hernandez has behind the plate or has just as an umpire. Joe West no longer umpiring. He retired after last season. I think that was a good thing for the game, and I think a good thing for anybody that wants to see the speed of the game sped up. And now we're seeing Angel Hernandez get his, which I think we're all really excited to see. In elsewhere, we've got Miguel Cabrera joining the 3,000 Hit Club over the weekend. Did so against the Colorado Rockies as the Yankees were so cowardly in their series finale against the Tigers. Didn't want to face Cabrera in the ninth inning. They put him on base so Cabrera then does it on Saturday against the Rockies, joining the 3,000 hit club. He's also a part of the 500 home run club. Only six other guys in baseball history have done so. Really interesting read today on the ringer. Talking about when will we see the next member of the 3,000 hit club. 
And boy, it's going to be a while. Zach Cram of The Ringer, he writes that there are not many guys on pace for 3,000 hits. If Robinson Cano hadn't missed a full season and, and if he hadn't missed time because of suspension also prior to that, if the 2020 season hadn't happened, maybe he would be closer to 3,000 hits. Maybe somebody like Jose Altuve would be closer to 3,000 hits, but that hasn't been the case. He has dropped off dramatically in his pace in his pursuit of 3,000. Heck, even Mike Trout, not necessarily on pace for 3,000 because of injuries. And you look at how many games he has played over the last few years, it has been dramatic in the amount of games missed. Obviously, the 60-game season in 2020, but last year only playing in a handful of games dealing with injury. So really missing about one and a half seasons worth of games for Mike Trout. And then also in 2017, missed some time too. It doesn't look like Trout's going to get to that pace either. But I also thought it was a good point. I thought it was a very interesting point made in that with offense being down league-wide, I mean, why would we ever expect a guy to get 3,000 hits? Even a guy like Juan Soto who is still young, he's 23 years old, has already played four years in the big leagues. But with how much he walks and with how much walks are emphasized across Major League Baseball, there are not going to be many guys breathing down the neck of 3,000 hits. And Cram does a really good job of pointing out that Ted Williams, Barry Bonds, Babe Ruth, all those guys fell short of 3,000 hits. And they are all very much in the conversation of best hitter of all time. Now, Williams missed plenty of time due to his service in our military. Thank you to the troops. But also, that Ted Williams was not somebody the guys wanted to face. You look at his walk numbers, he was put on first base quite regularly. As we know, Barry Bonds would routinely get intentionally walked. He had 232 walks in one season. That's 232 plate appearances that don't end in a hit. You look at his number of walks over the course of his career, the number of walks that he has would be a great career for a lot of guys just in terms of at-bats. So the better a hitter is, the less guys want to throw to him, the less opportunities for 3,000 hits. Now, Zach Cram does settle on a few guys that could very easily be in the conversation for 3,000 hits. Manny Machado, he's got 1,425 hits through his age 28 season. He turns 29 this year, ahead of the median pace of 1,355, and he's had a great start to the 2022 season, and he's remained healthy. He's appeared in more games than any other player since 2015, which is kind of funny because there is that, that stigma around him that he's not a guy that likes to hustle. But in Machado's two full seasons in San Diego so far, he has seen his hit totals lower, especially any that he managed in a healthy season in Baltimore, and only has a 3% chance according to Zip's projections. That's Dave Zimborski. So there is a long way to go for Manny Machado. Ozzie Albies of Atlanta, Rafael Devers, they are close in pace as well. They're only 24 years old. Vlad Guerrero Jr. has... 372 hits. Juan Soto has 485 hits. They're both ahead of the median pace of a 22-year-old, but as we know, when a player is that young, there is so much to take into account. And Wander Franco, a guy who the Mariners will face this week in Tampa Bay, he's got 81 hits through his age 20 season. So 
Are 3,000 hit guys a thing of the past? I hope not, because it is one of the all-time accomplishments in Major League Baseball. But I also do find it funny when guys say these clubs are not as exclusive as they used to be. Look, as the years go by, obviously more and more players are going to join the 500 Home Run Club. They're going to join the 600 Home Run Club, the 700 Home Run Club. Same with the 3,000 Hit Club. That just happens with the passage of time. The 500 Home Run Club, I think, has increased in its exclusivity post-steroid era, post-90s, post-2000s, because you're not seeing guys enter into the 500 Home Run Club every single year. You look at it over the last couple of years, it has not been you know an every single year thing. Miguel Cabrera did it in 2021, and prior to that, David Ortiz did it in 2015, Albert Pools in 2014, Gary Sheffield in 09. So since 09, there have only been three guys to join the 500 Home Run Club. Whereas from 01 to 09, you had Bond, Sosa, Palmero, Griffey, Thomas, A-Rod, Tomey, Manny Ramirez, and Gary Sheffield. You had tons of guys joining the 500 Home Run Club in the span of about a decade. In the decade since, three guys. And that's why I think the outrage over, oh, there's too many guys in these clubs, they're not as, as impressive as they used to be, they're still very impressive. Still incredibly impressive to get 3,000 hits, to get 500 home runs, and to also be one of the few guys to both do it, that is incredible. Miguel Cabrera, one of the best hitters of his generation and one of the best right-handed hitters of all time. How about the scene in New York this week between Guardians outfielder Miles Straw, who played for the Houston Astros, and Yankees fans, the bleacher creatures out in Yankee Stadium. You had John Sterling calling the behavior of the fans unacceptable. They were throwing things onto the field after the game. Miles Straw calling Yankees fans the worst in baseball. Look, I think there are 29 other teams that would agree with Miles Straw on that. Uh, I mean, look, Yankees fans could do could do without them. I, I think uh, baseball would be better. I know T-Mobile Park would be much more enjoyable when, when the Yankees come to town without having them in the stadiums or in the stadium. But look, do you think that they were taking their frustrations out on Miles Straw because of his previous connections to the Astros and being a former Astro? Or is it just Yankees fans being Yankees fans? I'd say more power to Miles Straw. That is going to do it for us here tonight on Extra Innings. I really appreciate you joining me. We're going to be back in a couple of weeks. I believe May 12th is the next time the Mariners have an off day. So we will be bringing you extra innings that day. A lot of people to thank for this one. For Brandon Gustafson, Gary Hill Jr., and Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times, I am Curtis Rogers. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Extra Innings on Seattle Sports Station and seattlesports.com.